So this morning, I want to talk to you about how to receive, how to and how not to receive God's word, right? How do you respond when you hear God's word? Well, sometimes as we are around church, um, I've seen this a lot with people who get involved in the ministry, there becomes this familiarity with the, the word. So you stop kind of really hearing it. Because it's so familiar. It no, no, no longer strikes you like it used to. Like, for God so loved the world. When you first heard that, that was like, oh, amazing. But then pretty soon, yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it's not impacting us like it did at one point. And we're no longer getting as excited about it. In fact, one of the reasons I love to read different translations of the Bible is because I want it to keep affecting me. And sometimes I need to hear it a different way or with different words. So I get the power of it again. Others, even believers, and I'm not talking for unbelievers. I'm talking to believers. There is an incredulity when it comes to the word of God. Sometimes what we say is that's for that person or that person. You could actually sit through a sermon and apply it to everybody else in your life. You know, you can elbow the person to your right, the person to your left. And it's for everybody else. Even when we read, sometimes we're like, oh, Julie needs that. Hannah needs that. You know, my husband needs this. Oh, well, I guess there wasn't anything for me. God, speak to me. God's like, how many times? But even I've met believers who want to choose what they will and will not believe in the Bible. They, they want to believe that Genesis chapter 1 is just a song rather than a narrative. Like Thomas, they demand proof for what they're going to believe. And it's hard for them. They just like, well, you know, I don't really receive that God could create everything out of nothing. I'd rather believe that we're just all random concurrences of ooze. Or that there was a worldwide flood And six people survived on a big barge with every type of animal kind. Or that a whale swallowed a man and then spit him out alive after three days. It's like, Cheryl, those are the things that I kind of have a hard time with. Incredulity. Or do you believe every word that is written in this book? C.S. Lewis spoke about when he first came to the Lord. One of the things that had kept him from totally becoming a believer, is he knew that when he received Jesus Christ, he'd have to receive, as he put it, the whole package. That he would have to then say, I believe every word in the Bible. And he said, so when I did, if I'm going to begin with Jesus can live inside of me, then I better believe every word he spoke. He wouldn't pick or choose because he said to pick and choose what parts of the Bible he would believe would make him a judge of the Bible or equal to God rather than a receiver from God of his word. Do you receive the scripture as the word of God? Do you believe? Do you receive? Do you get excited about the promises? Do you desire to be a recipient? Do you ask God, how can I apply this or how can I participate in in what you're doing or you want to do or what I learned from the word of God. Luke's gospel begins with two very different receptions to the word of God. Two very different people 
an aged man and a young woman, were both given angelic visitations, majestic promises, personal calls, and words of praise. Both were believers. Both were righteous. Both were blameless. Both believed in God. Yet their reception to the gospel or the good news was very, very different. Now it ended in the same response. But there were two very different paths to growing in faith or growing in believing the word of God. Because faith is believing the word of God. And there were two very different receptions to this. The gospel of Luke is God's word to us. In Luke 1, 1 through 4, Luke begins his account citing the tenets of our faith. He said, the things which were most surely believed among us. Things. That's the Greek word pragma. And I love this because it's a forensic term. It means, it it could be like the the caseload. All the evidence. So the evidence is what he's saying. The evidence that was believed among us. And he talks about how it's the things, these things that were believed among us or that we have in common that brought us to faith, that brought us to fellowship. It's the believing of these things, faith, the word of God, that brings us into community or fellowship. Next, he cites the historical veracity of God's word. There were eyewitness testimony from those who saw Jesus, heard Jesus, And live these things out with Jesus that the ministers of the word have delivered to us. Or when this is delivered, preserved and passed down to us. In fact, those who gave us the Bible sacrificed their very lives to make sure that we could have this very word. Luke points to his own testimony. When he heard it, he perfectly understood it. It resonated in his heart, in his soul. He believed it, and it began to work in him immediately. But he wants everyone to know the veracity of the gospel, how you can trust it, how you can believe it. So he writes this orderly or chronological account for the purpose that believers might know the certainty of the events be able to cite those things that Jesus did, be able to talk about those things that he did with the right information and the knowledge that believers might know the reliability, the surety, the validity. What Luke delivered to us is the gospel. As believers, we have one of two responses. We can respond like Zacharias. Now, Zacharias was a believer in God. We're told he was of the division, division, division. It's uh, obvious, partly Armenian, division. He was of the division of Abijah. So in other words, he could trace his roots to the priesthood all the way back to the priest who served at the time of Saul and David. Consequently, from that lineage, he could Uh, sight back to Aaron. He was not just a Levite, but he was of the priestly order. Now, at that time, in Zechariah's day, the high priest 
was not of the order of um, Aaron. It had been bought uh, from the Maccabeans had actually bought the office from Rome. So the person who was in the high priest office, um, it was corrupted. It wasn't what it should be. But this man is actually a high priest or could it was actually in line to be a high priest. He would have been one that God recognized rather than Rome. He's also married to a daughter of Aaron. So his wife can trace her roots all the way back to Aaron, to the very first priest. We're told Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth, they were righteous. They weren't doing anything wrong. There was nothing that should have led them to incredulity. He and his wife walked in all the commands of God. They were blameless. They had integrity, uncorrupted. And he was serving God. He was in service. Um, He had an assignment. He did according to the custom of the priesthood, which meant he was in charge of burning the incense at the hour of prayer. So he's representing the people and the prayers of the people to God. And he's also representing the light or the answer of God to the people. Here's this man who is a believer, but not a wholehearted believer. And yet he's in this office of representing the prayers. Now he's serving at the hour of prayer. The devout prayer warriors are outside the temple in the courtyards and they're praying. And he's interceding on their behalf through the ritual incense on the altar. Now, again, let me remind you one more time. Zacharias is not a godless man. He's godly. He's serving the Lord. He's obedient to the commandments of God. He's uncorrupted. But he had a damper on his faith. Something had happened that dampened, that um, it didn't destroy, but it just, it just, stopped his faith. They just, it just halted the growth of his faith. He was just at this stage, like, Lord, I still believe, but don't worry about the rest. I'm okay where I am. I'm content at this stage. And not even an angel of the Lord coming into his very presence could change could move him from a lack of faith to great faith. Not even an angel. Now, I want you to think for a second about an angelic appearance. And I want you to remember this, that every time angels appear, they always say, do not be afraid. Now, don't you think there must be a reason for that? When you're in the book of Daniel... You find that Daniel, who had served in a Babylonian court with Nebuchadnezzar, had three of his friends thrown into a fiery furnace, had dealt with like the worst of the worst, the meanest of the mean barbarians, had been there when the Persians and Medes had taken over Babylon. We find this man absolutely shaking, trembling in the presence of an angel. So now here's Zechariah. He's lighting the incense. He's, he's doing his priestly duty. In a, in a very godly place. It's like, I would expect if I was going to see an angel to see one at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I just would. I mean, I come to church here. I felt the presence of the Lord here. I mean, 
That's where you'd expect to see it at the temple, especially if you're at the hour of prayer. I mean, this, everything is just right. Here's the angel. And we're told Zacharias is afraid, but he just keeps doing what he's doing. Like, oh yeah, that's probably just me. Yeah, I do that to myself sometimes, you know? Yeah, big. (laughs) And the angel says, don't be afraid. Like he gets his attention. Now, again, angels say, don't be afraid because they've got some scary features. And I think one is that they're really bright. They're so white and the glory of the Lord is on them. Years ago, and I've told you this story before, but it's such a great story and it did happen to me. I was a young girl, I think I was six or seven, and my brother Chuck was watching me for the night. My parents had gone out to something they had to go to. And my room was upstairs and Chuck Jr.'s room was downstairs. And our house was such that the main floor was the top floor and the bottom floor was a basement. It was built on a hill. So the lady next door used to have parties. And when she would have these wild parties, the partiers would often stand in front of my window upstairs. And it would just terrify me to hear voices outside my window. Plus, my dad got this price for this house for a really good price because it had been broken into like five times before we bought it. He bought it. Never once after we bought it was it broken into. But I had these fears. Plus, downstairs, there was a door that you opened and it was nothing but dirt. And my mom used to say she thought someone was buried there. I don't know if she did that because it got my imagination going and helped me to cooperate and be a little more obedient. But nevertheless, so I was really scared. So I heard voices. I went downstairs. I said, Chuck, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. So he, he prays for me. He says, Lord, just let Cheryl see an angel. So I go up. I get in my bed. And all of a sudden, the thought of an angel and the fact that they always said, do not be afraid. And I was thinking, why did they say, don't be afraid? Because they're really scary looking. And I started thinking of this huge thing, you know, bright with a sword, you know, coming in my room. And, you know, I was matching all sorts of facial expressions. And I got terrified. Like the angel wouldn't even fit in my room. And so I, I, I decided to beat it to the door and downstairs before the angel could come into the room and get me. And I went running hysterically because I could do hysterical really easily, to my brother. And I said, I don't want to see an angel. I don't want to see an angel. And they say, do not be afraid. I'm afraid I don't want any angel. So then he said, Lord, I just pray that Cheryl would see your hand upon her. Well, then I went upstairs and all I could think of was, you know, it spread out the universe. At the span of his hand, that's pinky to thumb, just coming, you know? And like, all I could see was the lines, you know? Like, you know? And, and especially the line that means he's going to live forever, you know? Just coming in. And, and I tried putting my covers over my head, but it didn't work because I just, I could feel it then. It's coming. You know, the hand is coming. So again, I beat it to the door, ran downstairs hysterically. I said, I don't want to see a hand. I don't want to see a hand. I don't want to see an angel. And so he puts his hand on me and he says, Lord, let mom and dad come home soon. (laughs) He was a great babysitter. But you've got this promise from the angel. First of all, you've got this fearsome countenance. It's an angel. It's not Joe from next door. It's an angel. And he's got this incredible promise. And actually, I I don't want to use the promise because promise almost says that, you know, well, we hope this will come. But he comes with a reality, with no wiggle room. 
He is stating what God is doing. This is what God's doing right now. This is it. Your prayers are answered right now. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. This is good news. And Gabriel gives detailed instructions. When this child comes and it's coming, do not let your wife drink wine or strong drink or the child. And then he tells the purpose of this child. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. He will go before the Lord in the spirit of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, make ready a people for their Messiah. I mean, this is an incredible promise. In fact, he's saying, you know what? People are going to start caring about the children, about the next generation. This is, this is what the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit will be so strong on the son that the Lord God is giving you. And this prophecy correlated with all the prophecies given by the ancient prophets. And it came through Gabriel, the angel who appeared to Daniel, Daniel 9.21. But Gabriel says, I mean, Zechariah says, how shall I know these things? Uh, Then he uses the word gnosko. How how am I going to experience these things? I'm old. My wife is old. Zacharias is saying two things. He's saying, one, not interested. Not interested. You know, that ship passed two years ago. I don't want to get on it anymore. I'm no longer interested in a cruise. And Gabriel says in verse 19, I'm Gabriel. In case you hadn't noticed, I'm pretty special. I stand in the very presence of God. And I was sent by God to deliver this message to you. Even as we're told in Hebrews, the law of God was delivered by angels. And it proved irrevocable how much more this gospel. But he's incredulous. Talk about a damper on his faith. Not even this angel that stood in the very presence of God could remove this blanket. So he asks for a sign. This is what he really wants. What's the sign? I'm too old. That ship's passed. I've had so many hopes. I believe when Gabriel said, your prayer is remembered before God, I believe it's a prayer that Zachariah had long, Zacharias had long ago given up on. It was like, that prayer? <laughs> no, that prayer's in the round file. I don't believe in that prayer anymore. I don't even want that prayer anymore. I'm old. I don't even think I want a child anymore. I'm too old. How shall I experience Gnosko this? He wants a sign. Obviously, Zacharias has forgotten about the patriarch. His great, 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 grandfather, Abraham, who was old when the promise was given to him concerning Isaac older when he received the promise that he would be the father of the Jewish nation. Unlike Zacharias, we're told in Romans 4, 17, 22, that when Abraham heard the promise, he didn't consider his age, didn't consider how old Sarah was, but he reckoned on the power of God's faithfulness and he received the promise. Zacharias does receive a sign, 
the sign of silence. I've received that sign before. It's not pleasant. And he is unable to speak or participate. And he had to watch everything fulfilled in its own time because he refused to believe the glad tidings. He couldn't participate. He had to be on the outside watching. When Zacharias emerged from the temple, Luke 121, we're told that he couldn't speak and people marveled and realized something had gone on because he lingered so long in the temple. I just need to pause here and say in Matthew 121, the scripture reads, and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And that was the scripture my mom meant to put on all the Christmas cards in 1970. She accidentally put Luke 121 and they wondered why he lingered so long in the temple. (laughs) And those Bible students who wanted to know what scripture Kay put on her Christmas card so maybe they could do it, thought it was a secret message. Was Chuck a workaholic? Was he spending too much time? Had he had an angelic visitation that nobody knew about? In verse 22, we're told that Zechariah was unable to speak, but people perceived by his countenance that something happened, but he couldn't communicate it. He couldn't tell anybody. Maybe he could gesture and it's like, sounds like, sounds like angle. There was an angle somewhere in the temple, a prism. Uh, You're in a prism that you've made for yourself. You know, charades was not working in those days. And we're told that Elizabeth, his wife, conceived when he went home, according to the word of God through Gabriel. And she hid herself the first five months. Maybe she had had a lot of false hopes in the years before, thinking she was pregnant when she wasn't. Um, We're told about Queen Mary, not in the Bible, but in history, that Queen Mary thought she was pregnant, but it was actually a fibroid tumor and cancerous, and she died because of that. And there are such things as, you know, hysterical pregnancies. And Elizabeth probably is a little bit incredulous at this time too, because here's Zachariah, you know, motioning and it's weird. And then she's like, could I be, you know, could this really, really be happening? Now our second responder or our next responder is Mary. Now it's the same angel, But this time, rather than to the temple, he sent to a house in Nazareth, not a holy place, but an obscure village where the population was very sparse. Now, this was an area hidden in um, the Galilean hills where the descendants of David had gone to hide from a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was trying to wipe out all the descendants of David so that the prophecies concerning a son of David taking the throne of Israel could not be fulfilled. Now, we think of like, oh, to be related, you know, the son of David. You know, we'd probably be going around like, well, (laughs) I'm related to David. You know, like some people do about Daniel Boone or Jesse James. Don't ask me why. But not these people because it was dangerous It was dangerous because you have someone like Herod who um, has usurped that throne and has taken it by bribery and not by right. 
And so the descendants of David were hiding. In fact, the word Nazareth, when you go there, they said it means the branch. It's um, because it says the branch of the Lord or a root or stem shall come out of Jesse from Isaiah 11, 1, Jeremiah 33, 15. But remember, Mary is there in hiding as a descendant of David. Joseph is there in hiding. God finds them in their obscurity. And this angel is sent to this young girl, not someone who's in active service to God, but a virgin. She's betrothed or engaged. Now, in those days, the Jewish ceremony was the uh, engagement or was the ceremony, the engagement, the betrothal. It was a public um, consecration of the bride and groom to each other before they came together in the marriage celebration. It was presided over by a rabbi. The groom would give the bride wine and bread, and they would drink of the same cup and eat of the same bread, signifying that they were one. And he would say, you are consecrated to me, even as the vessels in the temple are consecrated to God. It was binding. It was absolutely binding. At that moment, the groom paid all her past debts and assumed all her future debts. And then he would go away and he would prepare a place for them to live in. And he would build the house. And as soon as the house was ready, he would come and get her. And that would be the celebration that she was waiting for with her best dress and just ready to put it on when she got word He's coming, he's coming, he's on the way, he's coming. And then that would start the huge celebration. So Mary, at this point, she's betrothed. She's waiting for the celebratory time. She's waiting for Joseph, who in that day, a carpenter would have also been an architect, was building the house. So she's set apart, she's consecrated, but she hasn't yet claimed And at this point, an angelic messenger comes to her and says, Mary, to Mary, rejoice. This is the response God intends to the word he's about to deliver through this angel. Rejoice. You know, it's probably because the reception wasn't so good with Zacharias. So I'm going to tell you how I want you to respond. I'm going to give you some news. I just want you to rejoice. Like start smiling now. This is good stuff. Because the last guy, he was such a grump. I I really want a better response. And then he says, highly favored one or graced one. The word is um, karitu, where we get the word charis, karitu. It means graced, the one. um, And of course, grace means God's favor, God's power, God's enabling. And then he says, blessed are you among women. The word blessed is eulogio, where we get the word uh, eulogy. And so he's saying, you're blessed. Now, Mary is troubled at his word. What does that mean, troubled? She's concerned or perplexed is a better way to see it. She's curious, but she's perplexed. Like, what? Highly favored angel, blessed. What what does this mean? And then the angel says, favorite phrase, don't be afraid. There it is again. You have found favor with God. 
Then the angel tells her, you're going to conceive and bring forth a son and call his name Yahshua or Savior. Then the angel says about this child, Jesus, that he will be great. In other words, he will be divine, called the son of the highest. He would be the rightful heir to the throne of David. He would reign over the house of Jacob forever and no end to his kingdom or power. This is this is so um, close to Isaiah 9, 6. The promise unto us, a son is given. A child is born. Mary's question is not incredulity, but one of participation. How shall I know this? In other words, how can I be a part of this? And she mentions the obstacles. I don't know a man. Uh, again, the word gnosko. I haven't experienced a man. She's a virgin and pure, according to the prophecy again in Isaiah 7, 14. This will be the sign unto you. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Perhaps this prophecy even came to her mind during this exchange. Then Gabriel tells Mary in verse 35, God's plan. The Holy Spirit would come upon her. The Holy One would overshadow her, envelop her as one enveloped in a cloud, surround her. And Jesus, or the very word of God, would be conceived or come to life in her womb. The word of God, it would be implanted. God's word would grow in her. He says that holy one who is to be born will be the son of God. God's word would be born from her life. Then he confirms this word by telling her that her cousin Elizabeth, by a miracle, is also pregnant five months along. And he says this in verse 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. You know those obstacles, virgin, unknown, not an impossibility to God. And this is what Mary does. She immediately presents herself to the word of the Lord. Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. In other words, she is saying, whatever God wants of me, it's unreserved. No hesitations, no restrictions, no clauses, Lord, whatever you want. That word, let it work in me, whatever you want. Mary cooperates. She rises and goes to Judea to see Elizabeth There she receives further confirmation because when Mary comes through the door and greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth shouts out. She gives a shout out. Whoa, the babe just leaped in my womb. And she begins to speak. Blessed are you among women. Same word that Gabriel used. Yolegio. And blessed, again, is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord confirmation of what Gabriel said, the son of the highest should come to me. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in the womb for joy. Now, remember what Gabriel said? For with God, nothing shall be impossible. This is how Elizabeth confirms that very word. Blessed is she who believed for there shall be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord.
At this point, Mary breaks forth in praise, and we call it Mary's Magnificat, verses 46 through 55, very quickly. Mary extols God. She magnifies the Lord. She rejoices in God, her Savior, prophetic. She rejoices in God's calling, that he regarded the lowly estate of his handmaiden. He exalted her to a place where generations to come would know her and refer to her as blessed, eulogio. That the mighty one, he who is mighty, had done great things for her. Then she extolled God's goodness, his holy name. His mercy on those who fear him from generation to generation, his faithfulness. His strength. And his ability to deal with the opposition. Because he scatters the proud using their own imagination. He puts down the mighty from their thrones. He's able to deal with the Herods and the Caesars of this world. He exalts the lonely, fills the hungry with good things, sends the proud, the self-satisfied away empty, keeps his promises, his covenant forever, the one he made to Israel, to the fathers, to Abraham. Now, filing to my main points. Mary Because she believed God's word from the time it was given to her, from the time she heard it, she cooperated with it. She presented herself and her life to the Lord. She received the Holy Spirit and she was enveloped by the Lord. You see, God wants us to cooperate with his word when we hear it. Not to say, well, they can cooperate or that's for somebody else or to be like Zacharias, I'm going to wait till it's confirmed. I have to see it to believe it. God wants us, the minute we hear the word of God, to begin to cooperate and to do a presentation. Here I am. I'm the maidservant of the Lord. I'm here for the purposes of God's word, that God's word might work in me, might be implanted in me, and that God's word might then be conceived in me, might be implanted, might have a place in me. When she cooperated, she conceived God's word within her. Jesus, the word of God, again, was implanted and Jesus began to grow in her. When we cooperate, when we say, Lord, let it be to me according to your word, Jesus enters into us. His word, it finds a place in our heart and our lives and it begins to grow. It begins to take over our lives. Next, we find that because she cooperated, God's word was conceived, but next she entered into community. Unlike Zacharias, who couldn't talk, Mary was able to go and fellowship with Elizabeth. And what did they talk about? They talked about the promises that they had both received. They talked about the faithfulness of God. They talked about the goodness of God. They were able to rejoice together about what God had promised them, what God was doing in their lives, the gifts that God was giving to them, and the faithfulness of God to his word. Oh, the community when we cooperate, when the word is conceived. But finally, her faith was confirmed. Elizabeth, everything that Mary received from the angel was confirmed by Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who didn't know what was going on with Mary, only that she had this husband that lingered so long in the temple and came out speechless, and that she had a child. 
but she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She spoke to Mary and she confirmed everything. Now, Zacharias, he did not cooperate. His faith was slow to be conceived in the Lord. It came, but it was a very slow conception. Hence, he had no community during that time of waiting. He wasn't able to speak. He wasn't able to talk about that. Maybe he could write, but most of the people in those days were illiterate. Very few could read. And the confirmation of God's word only came at the birth of John when he literally saw a son was born, not a daughter, a son was born. Only then, only then after eight days, when it was time to circumcise and name the child, and the relatives were pressuring Elizabeth to name the child after someone in the family, rather than after his father, Zacharias. Did they give Zacharias a writing tablet? And he wrote, finally he's cooperating, his name is John. His name is John. The angel said it was to be John, it's John. Now we see Zacharias participating. He's writing it out. And suddenly, when he finally cooperates, the word of God is conceived in him and he gives birth to a prophetic utterance. You see, Mary gave praise before she was probably even showing. She was already, the word was already working in her and bringing forth praise. But Zacharias could not give that praise until he actually saw it take place. Hence, it was only after this that the praise was conceived and he could talk about God's goodness, visited and redeemed his people, faithful to his promises, God's faithfulness to keep his word, to save Israel from their enemies and all who hate them, to perform the mercy promised to the fathers, to keep the holy covenant to Abraham. Could he talk about God's purposes to grant freedom to those who serve him, that those who serve him might be able to serve the Lord without fear in holiness, in righteousness all their lives? And could he speak and praise God for what God was doing in his life? God's promise concerning this son that he had given Zacharias, that he would be called the prophet of the highest, would go before the face of the Lord, would prepare the way of the Lord, and would give the knowledge of salvation by the remission of sins. And then God's promise concerning his own son. In verses 78 through 79, by the tender mercy of God, the day spring, or the source of life. Um, this is the Greek um, term for the Hebrew that is used in Jeremiah 2.13 about the, the um, spring of life of living water that the people of Israel had forsaken God. It's living spring, day spring for cisterns that could hold no water. And then a light to those who sit in darkness, Isaiah 9, 2, and the shadow of death, that he would guide the feet of his people into the way of peace. Now, Zacharias only came to realize the absolute veracity of God's word when he cooperated. And only then could he receive community and God's word be conceived in him and bring forth praise. It was then. 
Zacharias got to the point of praise. He understood, he prophesied, and he became a participant in God's great work. But he missed out on the community that God intended for him, on the fellowship, on the being able to speak it out. You see, God has intentions for his word. He desires you to believe it when you hear it, to cooperate with it, to present yourself to the purposes of his word. Because God wants to implant his word in you. According to James 1.21, James says, Receive the implanted word of God with meekness. Meekness is that spirit that we see in Mary, that humility. Let it be to me according to God's word. Whatever God wants to do, he's God. He sends angels. Whatever he wants, he's all powerful. And the joy of just Oh my goodness, God wants me a part of his plan. Oh yes, I'm all in. God wants us all in because he wants to conceive his word in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, by being enveloped by God himself, by receiving that word with meekness and that humility saying, yes, Lord, you said it. Therefore, it's true, and I want it in me. And give me more room for that word of God to grow. When God also, not only does he desire that we cooperate so that the word can be conceived in us, he wants his word to be implanted and to grow in us, but he wants to give us community through the word. He wants us to share in community. See, It's the incredulous. It's the people that are struggling with faith because they have a damper on their faith. They've been disappointed by God. He hasn't done what they asked in their timing. They they think God's forgotten those prayers. And they're waiting on God to do that thing. And then when God does that thing, then they'll come to church. Then they'll talk about him. Then they'll join him. But they isolate themselves because God has not done that thing. And they're missing out on the community. There is nothing. Those of you who are in a group know exactly what I'm talking about. There is nothing like talking about the promises of God. God gave me this promise. Could it really be? And somebody goes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That is totally for you. If I was going to give you a promise, that would be the one I would choose. That is so God. You're like, really? Really? Yes. But let's ask, you know, Julie, Julie, Cheryl thinks she got a promise. Tell her, tell her, tell her, you know, and then like, I think I heard God say, yes, so I want one. Will he do it for me? Yeah, let's see. I mean, that's what God wants to do. And we sit in the groups or you kind of got a promise, but you think maybe I'm just doing this to myself. Maybe this is a hysterical promise promise, like a hysterical pregnancy, you know, maybe I'm just doing this to myself. And somebody says, you know what? I feel like this is what the Bible is saying. You're like, I felt that too, but I was too afraid to say something. And they just took this chance. Everyone's like going, that's deep. You're like, oh, darn. I had it deep. (laughs) Community. Share these promises with others. You've gotten a promise and you know this promise is also for somebody else. And you get to share this promise. Oh my goodness, when you said that, the babe leaped in my womb. Of course, I don't have a babe in the womb, but whatever it was, it leaped. My heart leaped within me. I felt it. And there are those times. I remember being in a group 
And this um, Abraham Diaba said to me, Cheryl, can you speak to our college group? And I said, yeah. And he said, it's on surrender. And it was like the room went, surrender, surrender, surrender. And I was like, Lord, where am I not surrendered? I mean, honestly, the Lord was like, Cheryl, you're not surrendered in this one area. And I wanted to talk to you. And it was like, it was like the room was shaking, surrender. And I was like, great. I have to go home and surrender and act like I'm already surrendered so I can do this retreat. Like, sure. That's what the Lord wants to do, to share about the promises with others. Hear God's promises to others and see God's work in your own life and in the lives of others, confirming the promises, those things that you had prayed, hearing the answers to prayer. That's what happens in community through the word. And then again, that confirmation of God's word before it even happens. So we are living then in expectation like any day now, any day now, that thing that was promised us by the Lord is going to happen. It just happened to Elizabeth. It's going to happen any day and through your own life. Years ago, Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in India, wrote a poem that captures this concept that we believe when we hear rather than waiting it out till we receive the confirmation and missing the whole journey and the beauty of the journey. And she wrote, before the winds that blow do cease, teach me to dwell within thy calm. Before the pain has passed in peace, give me, my God, to sing a psalm. Let me not lose the chance to prove the fullness of enabling love. Oh, love of God. Or I would say, oh, word of God, do this for me. Maintain a constant victory. Before I leave the desert land for meadows of immortal flowers, when there's no doubt about God's word being true, lead me where streams at thy command flow by the borders of the hours, that when the thirsty come I may, show them the fountains in the way. Oh, love of God, do this for me. Maintain a constant victory. God desires when you hear the word that you rejoice, cooperate, allow God's word to be conceived in you, enter into community, and then see the confirmation. But even before, as it's conceived, that you will give birth to praise in the process and not at the very end but in the very process, have that joy bubbling up in you that you have to speak forth the glory of the Lord because his promises are so sure. There is no doubt in your heart or mind that God will do the very things that he has promised. Cooperate today that right now you might live in the blessed estate realizing his choosing of you, the grace that is upon your life, the constancy and commitment of God to his promises. Has he not promised? Will he not do it? God would say to you, highly favored ones, I have promises for you that I want you to step into good things. Will you present yourself to the Lord? Let's stand up. Lord, I understand that at times 
we're all Zacharias, and other times we're like Mary, Lord. There are times that we just rejoice and get so excited about the promises, and then there are other times, Lord, that we're just like, hey, I'm serving. Isn't this good enough? And we're even afraid to begin to claim the promises. But God, I want to present to you right now your women, your precious daughters, and I pray that you would fill them with that favor that caritus, that grace, Lord, that they might hold up their hands and say, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word, Lord, that they would not miss out on the conception and the growth of your word in their hearts and minds and lives, Lord, that they might walk from one confirmation to another as their faith is strengthened, as the word of God takes more root and hold in their lives. Lord, that right now they might, Lord, be bursting forth with praise of who you are and what you're doing. That they might really, truly enter into the community of the saints, Lord, that right now, together with one voice, one heart, we might praise you for your goodness. We ask this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.